0: Father in heaven, please soften our hearts and bring us to know and obey your word. We thank you for all your creation and all your provision. We thank you for sending your son to be human, that he knew and obeyed your word, that after his last supper on earth, before he went to take your wrath, He was composed and gave his final words to his disciples and finally prayed for us that I myself may be in them. Amen. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests, and the Pharisees, they were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus knowing that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, he drew, they drew back and fell on the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of these you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning.
1: Uh, Great to have you with us uh, this morning. Well, I wonder, do you like roller coasters? The the build-up of the anticipation as the roller coaster starts clicking up and up, and then as you you creep up to its full height, you see high above everything else, and then the excitement kicks in. As you crest the peak and you start going down, you think... Here we go. And then when you're on the journey where you experience both positive and negative feelings as you race down, uh, feeling scared and thrilled at the same time uh, and scream and excitement, exhilaration and fear. And then there's that moment of natural airtime when you feel airborne and everything seems to stop and you're going to slow motion. And then you continue going down, blood and adrenaline pumping again. And whilst you're riding it, they're, they're a lot of fun. But they can be really scary at the same time. And We might actually feel like we're out of control and completely surprised by the, the sudden turn or tunnel or whatever's next. And we think, actually, do I like roller coasters? These feelings of being out of control, they, they may turn us off them. But, but here's the thing about roller coasters. They are designed to be like that. They're created purposely to make us feel out of control. See, a roller coaster does exactly what it's intended to do. And I'm glad for that because a rogue roller coaster never ends well. Well, last year we started working our way through the book of John's Gospel. We've seen uh, the life of Jesus and the many things that he's been doing, particularly the the signs and the miracles that Jesus has done that really point to his identity, like the feeding of the 5,000 men and and the raising of, of Lazarus from the dead. You see, only God has the power to do something like that. And so Jesus shows his identity as God's promised future king. He is God in the flesh. And while Jesus has done and said the incredible, well, there's been much opposition uh, against Jesus from the Jewish uh, leaders. Uh, you see, they hate his guts because of the things he said. They, see, they've, they've completely missed that the signs, these miracles Jesus has done. They, they point to his identity that what he says matches with what he did. But they can't see that, and they want him dead. And so after Jesus did the incredible raising Lazarus, the dead man who was a stinking, rotting corpse, after raising him from the dead instead of praising him, well, they plot to put him to death. But you see, Jesus is aware of this. He is aware that his hour has drawn near. And so he's been preparing his disciples for his departure, John 14 to 17. And while it might seem that Jesus' life is spinning out of control, people plotting to kill him, here he's arrested. uh, But just like a roller coaster, it is under God's control and goes according to his plan. Well, let's get into John chapter 18, shall we? And the first thing we'll notice is that Jesus goes to a known place. Have a look there from verse 1. When he had finished praying, or better, I think I, I, I like the rendering we see in the ESV, having spoken these words. That is, after saying the things he said in chapter 14 to 17, after that, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. You see, Jesus leaves the upper room and goes to a known place. And did you see that in verse 2? Judas knew the place. You see, Jesus would often go here with his disciples, and that includes Judas. Jesus, he goes to a known place where Judas will find him. You see, Jesus isn't hiding. Whoops, you found me. No, no, no. He goes to a known place so that Judas will find him and you see where they've gone it's actually the perfect place it's away from the city it's away from the crowds jesus won't be mobbed it's the perfect place for jesus to be arrested and you see we might see this and think what a tragedy he was so young only 30 in his early 30s jesus could have accomplished so much if only he hadn't been arrested and killed oh how much better it would have been but you see, that is completely wrong. Jesus goes to a known place not to conceal, not to change his habits like a criminal might, trying to avoid being captured. No no, he doesn't seek to be avo- he doesn't seek to avoid his arrest. He goes to a known place where he will be found. And so Judas, who, who knows it, finds him, goes to the known place, and brings Romans and Jews. Uh, to Jesus. From verse 3, he led a detachment of, of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now a detachment or band or cohort depending on translation, uh, uh, that kind of get group of Roman soldiers, we're talking about a, a, quite a few soldiers here. We might have thought it was just, just a couple of soldiers, maybe, maybe a handful, but a detachment could be anywhere up to 600 1,000 soldiers, a lot of soldiers. And, and it makes sense. You see, the Romans, they took their soldiering r- really seriously. Do you remember they're in the book of Acts when there was this plot to kill the Apostle Paul? Uh, Paul was in the Roman custody and there was this plot to, to kill him. And so, what do the Romans do? Well, they, they move him from, from one city to, to another city and they escort him with 200 soldiers. 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And that's just for one man. And so 600, 1,000 possibility makes sense. It's a possibility when you think there's Jesus and the 11 apostles. Well, Jesus led the Romans, but he also led the the officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. Uh, These are the temple police They're the primary arresting officers. When someone broke the law, these guys would arrest them and then then bring them to the authorities uh, to deal with it. And together, the, the Romans and the Jews, they come. It's quite a formidable force. And you just see that they're expecting a fight. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And so it's like the SAS of today. The elite soldiers being sent in to find the rebels who are, who are hiding in the mountain. And they've got helicopters combing the desert, search, searching for these rebels with machine guns and rifles ready to fire. Well, here they are coming out to meet Jesus. But I wonder if you wondered why would the Jews bring the Romans? I thought it was just the Jews that had a problem with Jesus. You see, during the Passover, which is happening uh, at this moment in Jerusalem, uh, over a million visitors would kind of descend on Jerusalem. And the Romans who occupied uh, Jerusalem at that time, they turned up their presence. They turned up and quite heavy presence during that time to prevent an uprising and riot uh, uh, happening with, with so many Jews present. And so it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That the Jewish uh, leaders would ask the Romans, hey, can you come with us? We're going to go arrest this Jesus guy. We're not sure if there'll be a violent resistance or a revolt. But did you see Jesus' response? He goes to a known place. He doesn't try to escape and avoid arrest, but he goes where he will be found. Well, from verses 1 to 3, we've seen that Jesus goes to a known place where he'll be found by Judas, and that's what's happened, which brings us to the next point. It's a known plot. Verse 4, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him. You see, ever since John 11, after raising Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and the Pharisees have plotted to kill Jesus that wanted to, to kill him for quite a while, but have failed at, at each attempt because the time wasn't right. And, and But that is God's timing, by the way. But now that the hour had come, well, Jesus obediently offers himself to be arrested because he knows what's going to happen. It is a known plot. And Jesus, knowing the plot, get, And Jesus, knowing the plot, that actually gives us full confidence in his identity. That that what he says and does really confirms who he is. Jesus speaks with those who are arresting him. And do notice that Jesus takes the initiative. He speaks first and is in total control from verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said this, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You see, Jesus approaches the crowd and takes the initiative by speaking first. He doesn't hide but asks, Who do you seek? And after they respond, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, Well, I am he. Now, of course, Jesus is saying here, yep, that's me, I'm the Jesus of Nazareth, but there's so much more to these words, I am, than that. You see, I am is God's self-identification with God. He's saying, I'm God in the flesh. You see, I am invokes God's self-disclosure to his people. You see, way back in Exodus, in the very second book, uh, in the second book of the Bible, uh, God's people were slaves in Egypt, and God speaks to Moses through a burning bush and tells Moses He will rescue His people and bring them out of slavery. And in this conversation, God reveals His name: I am who I am. And ever since then, that language of I am has been wrapped up with with, with God's name. It's how God identifies Himself: I am. And we actually said. throughout the Old Testament. Just one example here from Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. You see, the Jews in Jesus' time, they knew that I am was God's name. And then when Jesus used that language for himself, well, the Jews, they lost it. They thought he was blasphemous, making himself equal and claim equal with God and claiming to be God. And so we actually see their reaction. We've seen it earlier in chapter eight. After Jesus said, I am. Uh, see what they see what they do at this? They they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. You see, they knew exactly what Jesus did, And while stoning to death was the punishment for, for approved uh, blasphemy, they had failed to see that what Jesus had been doing and saying had really matched his identity, that he was God in the flesh before them. But back in chapter 18, do you notice this crowd that have come out to Jesus, how they respond have a look again at verse six. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They were blown away by Jesus' divine revelation. He is God in the flesh before them. And they fall to the ground like dominoes. You see, a common reaction to a divine revelation uh, being in God's presence, well, it's to fall over. We actually see Throughout the Bible, Ezekiel, one of the prophets, uh, he, when he he sees God's glory, the appearance of God's glory, he fell face down. Now, same with, with the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. He fell to the ground uh, and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Here's this huge crowd that have come out to arrest Jesus, both Romans and Jews, and having heard Jesus' divine revelation, I am, they fall over like dominoes, like bowling pins. He isn't just a man. He is God in the flesh, the great I am. And while this group regathers after falling over, Jesus continues to take control. Again, he said to them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. You see, Jesus takes charge of the situation. He's the one being arrested, and yet He's calling the shots. He's seeking the release of his disciples like he has promised earlier. You see, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the good of his sheep. Jesus willingly, obediently is arrested and dies to secure the safety of his his disciples. You see, all of this isn't a surprise. It's a known plot. He knew what would happen. and and even takes the initiative. He's like the one who made the roller coaster. He's not shocked and surprised by the sudden moves and turns. Uh, He's in complete control. And you see, this should reassure us. And it's reassuring for us when we find ourselves in challenging and difficult times. We know that God is in complete control over all things, even the death of his son. And we've spent a a fair bit of time thinking about, about this aspect, particularly in the book of Habakkuk, but we'll being reminded of, of these same truths here in, in John's Gospel. You see, bad, difficult, challenging suffering that happens to us, it doesn't mean that things have gone out of God's control. Uh, COVID-19, church, our family or work situation, our long-term injury or sickness, You see, Jesus is in control. And you see, this is reassuring for us in those difficult times. The world hasn't spun out of control, out of God's grasp. He is in complete control. And I mean, we may want to know why. Why, Lord, is this happening? Well, we need to continue to trust him. Because he knows why, and we know that. And he loves us, and we know that too. And he may be using these difficult and challenging times to grow us, that we may trust him no matter what is taking place and to help us long for the hope of the resurrection and glory. You see, back in John 18, Jesus is being arrested and on this dark day that leads to his eventual death and crucifixion, he is in total control. He's calling the shots because it's a known plan. In fact, it is. God's plan. Jesus goes to a known place and it is a known plot. And finally, it is a known cup. We've seen that Jesus is in total control. He knows what's going on. He's not surprised by what's happening. But not so Peter. Peter. Have a look there at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Milchius. You see, Peter sees that huge crowd that comes to arrest Jesus, and he's not having it. It doesn't fit with the picture he has of the Messiah. He thinks Jesus, he's the Messiah who's going to come and reign, destroy the enemies. Not be arrested. Not die. It's a Peter takes matters into his own hands. He tries to take control by, by swinging his sword. And whilst the mind seems courageous, well, he actually acts like a bandit, an outlaw, a, a criminal thug. You see, Peter's got no idea. He's failed to understand and comprehend what Jesus has been talking about in the, in the previous chapters. He's failed to see that Jesus has just secured their release. And so Peter approaches this all wrong. In fact, he denies the work that Jesus must complete. He denies the mission Jesus must fulfill to save his people. You see, he hasn't understood that Jesus is in total control, even in his arrest. You see, Peter denies Jesus in his word and tries to take matters into his own hands. And I reckon we can be tempted by that too. We can seek to take control of, of something that seems to be spinning out it and, and hold on tight, but actually not let God's work speak into the matter. Maybe any number of things. I must marry this person. I want to become a pastor, a minister. I must go here and do this. I must go there and do that. I must begin this new thing. And yet, despite your, your desires to do these things, people have discouraged you from doing those things. Christians have lovingly warned you and spoken against those things and, and brought God's word to bear in your life, but, but you're not having any of it. And take matters into your own hands, disregarding God's word. And you see, that is so dangerous. We can't look for God's will outside of God's word. If we do that, well, we are be against God and his word. And you see, that is a problem. And while that might be the temptation for us to be like Peter and take matters into our own hands, well, not so Jesus. You see, he knows the plot. He knows God's plan. He doesn't try and get out of it, but steps up to the plate and does God's will, no matter the cost. Verse 11, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Put it away, Peter. I've come to drink this cup. Now, the cup language, it's actually full of Old Testament imagery. And it stood for God's righteous uh, wrath, his anger. See, uh, here's here's a couple of examples from, from Psalm 75. It is... God who judges, he brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and the wicked of the earth drink it down to its drinks. Drinks. Uh, Again in Isaiah 51, awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. You see, the cup illustrates God's righteous, his measured, fair anger, his wrath against all wickedness and sin. And while the nations and all who oppose God, even God's people, like we saw in, in Habakkuk, they were, they were judged and drank God's cup of his wrath. But it's actually a cup that is reserved for all humanity, both past and present. You see, we are all guilty and deserve this cup. We have rebelled against God and his good order and standing. We have not treated him like we should. We've rejected him rather than acknowledge him. And so the cup, well, that is reserved for us. We see here that God's angry at sin. And yet we're trapped without a way out unless we're rescued. Like a person who may get trapped down a huge hole with no way out. There's no ladder. There's no footholds. They can't climb out. They are trapped. Completely trapped unless someone else comes out and rescues them by throwing down a rope or, or sending down a ladder. But do you see what Jesus is saying here? He will voluntarily take the cup and drink it, draining it to its dregs. Jesus, the perfect, righteous, holy one, the only one who's never put a foot wrong, always linked up to God's standards, he will take the cup and drink it for us. You see, Jesus is saying that he will take our place. He is the good shepherd who will give his life for the good of his sheep. He is the righteous, guiltless one who takes our place. He bears God's judgment, God's wrath in our place. He suffers so we don't face God's wrath. He rescues us and and brings us out of the hole that we're trapped in. We can't get out on our own. He comes down and rescues us. And you see, this has always been God's plan from the very beginning. Before the creation of the world, this was God's plan, that Jesus would take the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. You see, Jesus willingly and obediently does this. He offers himself up to be arrested. And be treated awfully and crucified, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But see, he does it to rescue and to save a people for himself. That's us. That we may trust him and live for him. We might look at this situation and think it's a roller coaster going out of control. But see, like all roller coasters, this is God's intended plan. And it does, and he does it to to rescue a people for himself. He has provided Jesus to deal with our greatest problem of sin so that we can have a relationship with him. But you see, this is only possible if Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath. Jesus takes that known cup. Jesus wasn't surprised by what was going on. This story is no tragedy. He hasn't lost control. It is the plan that he's always been. And so that is why he willingly and obediently goes to a known place and walks into a known plot that will result in his arrest and death so that he can drink the cup and save a people for himself. Well, how wonderful is that. Let's let's pray and, and thank God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that even though from, from our perspective it looked like things were spinning out of control, uh, Jesus does not take matters into his own hands but continue to willingly, but continues to willingly and obediently trust you and your plan. Uh and and take the wrath, take your cup and drink it for us on our behalf we thank you that through that and through our trust in the lord jesus we are your saved uh, people and uh, we do pray that that we would trust jesus in light of his saving work father we're sorry for the times that we have tried to take matters into our own hands where we have disregarded your word to try to take control of the situation we are so sorry that we we can do that at times and we do pray that you would help us trust you that we would listen to your word no matter the difficulty or no matter the cost that we may live lives that fully please you father we thank you for these things in jesus name